Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Brick, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 25th. A quick note before we get to today's episode, I had the always exceptional opportunity to speak with today's guest, Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane, this past Saturday as we wanted to chat about the many fascinating storylines currently unfolding right now across both the ATP and WTA tours. It was a conversation that spanned about two hours hours in length and covered everything from perhaps the biggest storyline we have seen in tennis this season, the decision from Wimbledon to ban both Russian and Belarusian players following the unprovoked aggression of the Russian government towards Ukraine. That's a decision that has transcended tennis media. It's broken through the mainstream media consciousness. We see it discussed on platforms such as CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, ESPN. Everyone is talking about Wimbledon's decisions, the implications of their choice. It's something we have yet to touch on in depth here at Crack Rackets. Of course, that's something I wanted to discuss with the always thoughtful David Kane. And then, of course, we had four tournaments of tour-level action unfolding last week on court. We had Barcelona, Stuttgart, Belgrade, Istanbul. Again, plenty of ammo, plenty of fodder for my conversation with David. Unfortunately, I have to admit to all of you listeners, I screwed up. We had some technical difficulties and in typical fashion, I try to record a podcast without super producer Daniel Westoff, who was back home this weekend attending the wedding of a close family friend. Of course, I managed to screw up the audio, but I did. I did screw that audio up. I do apologize for that fact to all of you listeners. As such, the reason I bring all of this up is it's going to be a two-mini-break Monday for all of you listeners. Now, the first half of my conversation with David Kane covering everything regarding Wimbledon's decision to ban Russian Belarusian players. The audio from that conversation, that part of it still holds up. So we are going to have that for all of you listeners here uh, on today's show, my conversation with David spanning uh, that topic, Wimbledon's decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players. David and I also discussed his trip down to the USDA National Campus in Lake Nona. David will be writing about that experience coming soon for Tennis.com. And I do think the USDA National Campus is the mecca of tennis here in the United States. I am always fascinated to hear other people's perspectives on it, what we could be doing to better maximize what is, in my opinion, one of the best properties in all of tennis. If it was on the Monopoly board, it's on the fourth turn, right? Before you go past go and restart your journey around the board. It's not quite a boardwalk, but you know, it's on that fourth section of the board, in my opinion, that USDA National Campus in Orlando. So I wanted to hear David's thoughts on that. Obviously, again, hear his thoughts on all things Wimbledon's decision. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, again, that audio from our conversation about all the on-court action last week from Barcelona, Stuttgart, Istanbul, Belgrade, all that audio unfortunately wiped out. As such, will be a two-mini break Monday for all of you listeners. I'll be back here later this afternoon to talk about all the action that unfolded. You know, Carlos Alcaraz winning double headers on two days in the week to capture another title. Iga Sviantec continuing her, you know, undeniable ascension to world number one. The pace both of those 
those players are at a resurgent week from Arena Sabalenka when she needed it most. And, you know, a Potapova title in Istanbul. Novak Djokovic looked better and better, even if not his best in Belgrade. Ultimately, he was bested in the final by Andre Rublev, who has been sneaky excellent throughout the course of this season as well. Again, there were a lot of on-court takes that I'm sure you listeners are looking for information about. I will be be providing that in a second mini break Monday, which we will have for all of you listeners later today. But again, I do apologize for the audio screw up still. We haven't yet talked in depth about Wimbledon's decision, trying to understand the logic behind their choice. We did have the opportunity to have that conversation with David Kane. So that's part one of our two mini break Monday for all of you listeners here now. Now, of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out here at Crack Rackets is because of the support we get from all of you, because of the support we get from our Crack Rackets. Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest equipment in the tennis industry. With that said, this intro has gone on long enough, so let's get to it. Understanding Wimbledon's decision here on today's show with the one and only Tennis.com editorial producer, David Kane. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, April 24th. There is so much going on right now across levels in the tennis world. Of course, it's conference championship week at the collegiate level. So many great results. We'll break them down on Tuesday and Thursday on the Great Shot Podcast. Rest easy, listeners, as there have been some shocking upsets, some top seeds separating themselves from the rest of the pack. We'll cover it all on our Great Shot podcast throughout the course of this week. Of course, it's been some really fun challenger action unfolding as well. If you missed out on Friday night's Michael Moe, Alex Kovacevic action, Mike Cation on the call, you're not treating yourself right as a tennis fan. Again, action happening at the challenger level week in, week out across the globe. That's always a good appetizer for the main course, which is, of course, the action being served up on the ATP and WTA Tour. It's another one of those four event weeks, the headline events for the women in studio. For the men in Barcelona, of course, we've also got action happening in Istanbul and Belgrade. And then we had the off-court storyline nuke dropped on us at the end of the week. Wimbledon making the decision confirming earlier reporting they will ban both Russian and Belarusian players from the 2022 event as such. There's a lot for us to break down, a lot for us to discuss. You guys are deserving of weekend podcasts of fans as you kind of need it if you're going to try and keep up with all the action happening across levels. That's what we're going to do here on today's show. And in particular, we're going to focus on the tour-level action. Again, four tour-level events happening this week, this massive off-court storyline as well. And if you're going to try and cover all of that, you better have some help to do it along the way. Thankfully, I do joining us once again on today's show. It's been a surprisingly long amount of time since we've had this guest 
on the podcast about a month. And of course, you know him best as our correspondent for all things major headlines happening in the tennis world. Of course, an editorial producer for Tennis.com, for Tennis Channel, returning champion here to our Crack Racket shows. It's our friend, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, my friend? Really glad to be back so I can let the audience and you too, Alex, know that we have been in a feud for the last month. I'm not <laughs> not used to being stood up this often by someone I'm not trying to date. But um, anyway, I'm glad we've resolved our issues and we can clear the air and move forward as we oh. do on many a Real Housewives reunions. So I'm, it's, I'm, I'm it's really but, glad to be back. Yeah, it's well, thank you. It's good to have you back. I will say probably my biggest flaw as a human is my inability to respond to text messages because I didn't, I'm sure this happens to you as well. I'm sure it happens to anyone in media, especially when you're trying to juggle a couple different storylines, a couple different levels, whatever it may be. You're trying to text as many different people as possible. And like sometimes people will look at my phone notifications and be like, you know, you have triple digit unread texts. And it's like, yeah, but half of them are group chats. Half of them are things. It was like a one-off question that I never clicked open at the same time. Yeah, it's justifiable beef you have with me. That's the theme I'm trying to say here. I admit it. It's all my New Year's resolution since 2012 has been to get better at responding to people on my phone. The only call, because I know I'm probably gonna get yelled at, that like I know I have to pick up is if it says Michael Gruskin, my dad. I'm like, oh, okay, like this is probably an order from the chief. So pick this one up. I mean, obviously, Laura Gruskin as well. But, you know, again, other than that, I do apologize. I will say for you to go, you know, on a sunshine vacation to come back tanned and glistened as you are today. I mean, if that's what I'm going to inspire you to do with anger, I should probably do this more often. Some say tanned. I would say burned, peeling, (laughs) Potato, potato, or perhaps in this case, tomato, tomato, because you are extraordinarily red. But I just assume that's excitement with all the action happening across the board. And uh, obviously, you've been busy, tennis.com. I know there have been a plethora of pieces uh, coming out from you, and I know you've got more in the queue as well. Before we get into today's conversation, any must-reads beyond everything? That's a must-read that comes off the desk of David Kane. We have some interesting stuff in the bucket that I don't know if I can I can share just yet, but yeah, coming off of a, a, a very interesting video shoot down at the USDA campus in Lake Nona, got the chance to meet with and speak to quite a few interesting characters and sort of uh, discussing the rise, this quick rise of American tennis and the, and the role that the USDA national campus plays in all of that, most uh, crucially heading into the uh, Roland Garros clay court season, the the six rolling, uh, the six Rome uh, built clay courts that uh, Madison Keys and Allison Risk and Andy Murray and Dennis Shapovalov. It was it was a global uh, practice session going on the last couple of days. So got some exciting things to look at, exciting things to write about, and hopefully I'll be able to share that with you all very soon. And we can talk about that piece when it comes up. I do want your impression. You are so thoroughly ensconced in all things tennis, in my opinion, the moment you walk onto that Orlando campus. And credit to Lake Nona, which, you know, we were there in 2017 for club tennis. And at that point, the national campus, you know, we were the first event held at the national campus. And Lake Nona was very much in its nascent stages of development. I mean, now, first of all, if you're not, did so did, how many nights were you there out of curiosity? I was there two nights, but you're right. It's a fully comprehensive experience throughout yeah. the grounds. You have pros practicing. You have yes. rec leagues playing. You have an ITF challenger happening on the green clay. It was there was Junior's really everything training to see. with coaches on the far yeah. green clay courts, and uh, so we got the tour as well. You get to go back there. You see the indoor facilities. You see the training rooms. The six clay courts in the back, away from the public. The six red clay courts. Excuse me, but. 
I don't, you know, again, there are qualms certainly to be had, and we have talked about them here at this show. The idea of why aren't we holding a futures event there every week? Why aren't we holding challenger events there, if not every week, bi-weekly, or at least once a month? And how do we maximize what truly is, in my opinion, a mecca of tennis? You walk onto that campus, and to your point, whether it's pros, whether it's juniors, whether it's league players, no matter what it is, on you know, you've got college matches that happen there on weekend. They bring in events like the Club Tennis National Championships, the Club Tennis wheelchair championships, all of these different things. It is an awesome facility. It is a property. How does USTA maximize it? I'm curious. I mean, again, if this is a crux of your piece, I apologize if we're jumping all over it, but that is my biggest question because I do feel it has that sort of potential. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest issues in the, what makes it great is also what makes it not, not necessarily sure. What makes it great is something that perhaps still needs to be worked on because of the location. I mean, it's a big evolution. They used to share space with the Chris Ebbett Academy. There used to be only six tennis courts, a gym that they used to, that was maybe a third of the size of what they're currently working with. So it has become a much more um, accessible place for the pros to practice, to to hone their games. You know, Naomi Osaka mentioned in Miami that she was going to get to Europe early to uh, warm up on the clay courts. You know, Keys and Risk don't have uh, to worry about that. They could stay in Florida for an extra couple of weeks and practice on the red clay, which is what I'm told is very similar to what they're going to expect over the next couple of weeks. At the same time, there are players like Francis TFO and um, Riley Opelka. It's great. They're great facilities. It's a great opportunity to practice, but it is in Orlando. And these are people who want to be able to have fun and live and, and make the most of their time while they're practicing. And, and in that sense, that makes it something that they don't want to spend year round at. I mean, at the same time, for me, looking at things sort of on a functional level, you know, what's a few, what's a few years to sacrifice when you can, you know, be on these, be on these courts, uh, take advantage of these facilities. And then when you retire, you can live and, and do everything that you want. But, it, you know, it's trying to balance all of that for these players, I think, is, is the biggest challenge going forward. Yeah. And to lure the top players down there full time is always going to be difficult because a lot of those players make enough money that they just want to be comfortable where they're at in the off season, And perhaps that's not Orlando, the city, which has its perks, certainly. And again, Lake Nona, I think it's called Booth Park, which is right, you know, down the road from uh, the Lake Nona facility. I was there, you know, for two and a half weeks last year during the NCAA tournament. It's a phenomenal community to be around. And then again, the moment you step on the national campus across levels, I think for the average fan, it's extraordinary, uh, an average player to go there. At the same time, you're right. That's why I say embracing the IT. They've already embraced the college level, but the ITFs, the challengers, you've got a hundred freaking courts. Like again, I know it costs money to do these things, but if you want to have the pro infrastructure, we've seen the rise of talent in Italy. How many challengers are they hosting there? You know, again, Forley 1, Forley 2, Forley 7, Forley 8. That's a serious thing, and you could do that at the USTA National Campus. So I do think it's a fascinating facility. And, you know, again, did you like the airport feel? You know, what were you at what point were you like, Ziplanes, Ziplanes? Did that lose, uh, lose its funk? We got very lucky. We, we all only had to interrupt shooting maybe two or three times for flying air, wow. uh, flying airplanes. I mean, it may be just because of all the delays that we've been having <laughs> to deal with in and out of the Orlando airport. Yeah. I, I myself I was was a victim of that heading home to New York City. But otherwise, yeah, but there wasn't I was expecting more of a National Tennis Center in Queens atmosphere and we didn't get it. We, we did get a whole range of weather. We got wind. We got sun, as, as I as I discussed at the top of the show. But it's true. I mean, there are outdoor hard, indoor hard. 
Hartrue, Red Clay. I mean, the sky's the limit in terms of creating the sort of one-stop shop for up and coming talent. Um, and I did get, I also got the chance to see the juniors as well. And even uh, top wheelchair talent, Dana Matheson with her coach, Jason, just really everyone and anyone who has a, a chance of becoming a, a future name is, seems to be at that campus at least some part of the year. And then to the other extreme, Maddie and Allie live very close to uh, the site. They're, they're ones who've taken full advantage of the, uh, the opportunity. Is Cracked Rackets HQ moving anytime soon? No. Westoff and I are about to renew our lease for another year, which, by the way, good news. No divorce on the Westoff Gruskin front. Yeah, I'm rooting for you guys. Yeah, thank you. You know, it was tough there for a little bit. We had to get a dog, you know, as a distraction, Um, but it worked. Uh, Anyways, are we going to move anytime soon? No. If we did move, would Orlando be very much on the short list of places to be? Absolutely. Because, again, it's just a nexus of everything you want in tennis and you know, this is why we always love having you on the show, because this is six minutes we didn't know was coming. Uh, and I'm glad to hear your thoughts on the USTA campus, because certainly I do think it's an under it's somehow still under discussed as a property. It truly is spectacular. If you haven't had the chance to get down there, NCAA tournaments coming back there, I think next season. And I think D2 and three are down there this year as well. So go for that. Go for one of the many amazing events they host there, and you will understand what David and I are talking about. But with that said, let's move on to what's happening at the professional level, and let's start with the off-court news. And we always like to bring you on when it we're talking about something, you know, again, off-court related, because I think you bring nuance, thought, uh, you know, intelligence and kindness, compassion to all of these conversations. And I think this is a, a topic in particular where you need elements of all of those things. And obviously, I'm referring to the major story, Wimbledon making the decision to ban both Russian and Belarusian players from the 2022 event. You know, we saw in a, a massive display of response to this decision, I think, in uh, in a couple of uh, in, in a couple of ways. One, obviously, you saw Ukrainian players who a unified statement across the board from the majority of them saying we would like Russians, Belarusians, to participate in this event, but we need an open and public condemnation and denouncement of Putin and his regime and this you know uh, this unprovoked aggression from the Russian government towards Ukraine. Wimbledon, you know, ultimately, I suppose the decision holds with them, and I believe they echoed those sentiments as well. A public denunciation would grant you entry, I believe, into the event. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, David. From Wimbledon? Yeah. Did they say that as well or no? I know that was the—I know that was, like— that was reporters. Yeah, that, yeah, I don't yeah. know if that was in the official first state. This you're official well, state you're, you're out, right. I, I appreciate I have, that clarification. That, sure. There are whispers of that as well. And again, we still have a couple of months until the start of Wimbledon. Certainly things can change between now and then. But we also saw a, a, a wave of responses, not only from players, but from fans as well, expressing their sympathy for these Russian and Belarusian athletes who, through no direct fault of their own, are being asked to be held accountable for crimes of uh, and, and things that they had no active part of. And I do think, again, this is where nuance comes in because – I like to hope none of our listeners condone Russia's actions towards Ukraine. I like to think all of us can understand why public denunciation of those actions is so essential is to make Russia an outcast, is to make them understand, you know, again, and and to not offer them any sort of platform for rehabilitation. You can understand why the sentiments, again, Russian team sports aren't being allowed to compete 
globally at that stage. And obviously, where things become different is at the individual level in a sport like tennis, where you are asking a single individual to be a representative of an entire nation, and you're putting the burden uh, burdens of those nations on that individual's shoulders. And again, pl- players have expressed sympathy. There have been loose calls for boycotts, very loose. And if you know anything about the history of players organizing, particularly in this era, aka the PTPA, all these different things, you know how difficult organizations be, you know, organizing across levels, given the differing interests of so many different players, is to achieve. No question, your take, David, on everything that's unfolded. What's great about it is how black and white and easy it is to form an opinion. <laughs> on this, on I should have discussion. said you're an expert on all things black and white. I should have worked that yeah. into the intro. That's great. I mean, where to begin? I mean, I mean, I think this news puts everybody in a very difficult and uncomfortable position because I think now the conversation has shifted to defending Russian athletes, where I think where it rightfully should be is on how best can we support uh, Ukrainian athletes and the Ukrainian people. And so- for that reason alone, I feel that this decision was highly distracting. You know, what, what can we what can we do to help uh, Ukrainians feel safe and supported? And now it has become about the Russian players being the victims in this situation. So so that's that's made things uh, exceedingly tricky. And it's been a difficult conversation and a difficult discussion, even for me in my own head, because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not the one most aggrieved by this situation, I must say. But at the same time, you know, I have tremendous empathy for what the Ukrainians are going to going through. And at the same time, I have tremendous love for the Russian people. I mean, anyone who has read my work over the years know that I have tremendous affection for the Russian athletes who have played over the years. I find them very easy to talk to. I feel like I understand their uh, their perspective and, and try my best to present it to English speaking audiences as best as I can. And this has been obviously a very difficult time for them as well, where they don't know necessarily how to react and what to say and what is the best way to go about these things. Because I think what needs to also be reiterated, you know, is that this is a, these are people who have been subject to an authoritarian regime for over two decades now. And I think that also that changes how you see the world and what is the best way to go about things. I mean, when we talk about declarations of uh, condemnation, I mean, this is, this is, these are people who come from a country where expressing direct condemnation uh, can lead to 15 years in prison. And that's not just something that could necessarily befall them. That's something that can befall their family, because it is also important to remember that a lot of these Russian athletes do not live in Russia and they do not receive direct support from the Russian Tennis Federation. I mean, Daria Gavrilova notoriously left the Russian Tennis Federation because she received no such support from them and now represents Australia as she has for the last decade. Speaking frankly about most tennis players, they live in Monaco because they do not want their taxes to be collected uh, by a a sovereign nation. I mean, these are people who are very much independent contractors looking out for themselves first and foremost. But at the same time, you know, Andre Rublev spoke uh, in Barcelona about how he was you know, was on a call with other Russian players and the All England Club, and there was an offer to, you know, give up all their prize money uh, in the in in the in the name of supporting uh, Ukrainian athletes or supporting Ukrainian people, and you know that was met with, you know, I think I think Ukrainian people want justice and they want things to they want a big statement, and I think that they're of course going to be supportive of this, and I don't fault them for being that, but I think what this announcement has unfortunately done is created a situation where the Russians are the victims and, and Ukrainians are the aggressors, which is so the opposite of what is happening uh, in this situation right now. And so I think that has made this a tremendously uh, 
muddy waters. You know, I think that I wish there would have been a better way of going about this. Certainly functionally, it doesn't appear as though Wimbledon acted within any rules that are in place. There do appear to be rules that are in place that, in fact, prevent these kinds of uh, exclusions uh, uh, from players who qualify for the main draw. I mean, to, to go back to World War II style precedence, I feel like does not really serve uh, the All England Club in this situation uh, because we're certainly not in a world war and there's certainly a sport that has taken a structure that is far greater and more comprehensive than what was the case before the open era. Um, you know, this is, that was when, you know, participation in major tournaments were, you know, dependent on Davis cup uh, interaction. And so I think, yeah, there's certainly something to be said about the exclusion of team events uh, of Russian players, whether it's Davis cup or Billy Jean King cup. But at the same time, I think what we're, we're dealing with is these are um, individual athletes and, and I don't know if it's necessarily the right thing, to do. And I don't know if this is really going to lead to any kind of, I, I don't think this will be the final straw by any stretch of the imagination in ending uh, Russian aggression into Ukraine. So I think it's, and it's finally, as it, to wrap up this very long answer to your question, it's been very strange to see and very ironic to see that the players from Russia and Belarus have responded by playing some really phenomenal tennis. So you would have expected them to react to this bad news, the fact that they cannot potentially play in one of the four major tournaments Badly. I mean, these are a lot of very notoriously emotional players who deal with pressure in all wide ranges of, of fashion, and they're all responded by playing very good tennis. And it would be an even bigger shame from a very selfish sporting perspective if these are some of the best players on tour right now, and then they are not able to participate in Wimbledon. So all of which to say it's very complicated. No one comes out of this looking good, and, and I hope there is some kind of resolution going forward. You nailed just about every perspective I would like to hit. A couple more details that I think are critical for our listeners. A, this was an LTA Wimbledon decision, or even more so, this was a Wimbledon decision more than the LTA. This was not an edict from the ATP. This was not an edict from the WTA. And while I do think the WTA has more moral authority as a grounds to stand on, just given their interactions with China and the principles and the stances they've taken certainly throughout the era of Steve Simon as CEO, if we want to just go through this era, which is what this leadership reflects. I think the WTA is a completely different discussion. Had the ATP chosen this issue to make their moral stand about, I mean, then you could cry undeniable hypocrisy. I don't want to say to the ATP's credit, because I don't think they deserve credit in this instance, but it is worth noting that the ATP sent out a public condemnation is too strong of a word, but a public disagreement with Wimbledon's decision to say we support our players. We believe they should be uh, competing. You know, they're already not representing their country when they're competing in current events. You know, why not keep that? principle consistent uh, across the Grand Slams as well. I do think it's important to point that out, that again, this is a Wimbledon decision and not an ATP WTA decision. To your point about these athletes, particularly the Russian athletes, we already saw, and this was at a stage in Dubai or Doha, you know, an event that's not as grand as Wimbledon, because Wimbledon isn't just, you know, Wimbledon, of course, is the granddaddy of them all on the tennis calendar, the prestige and, you know, again, the tradition, of course, that's number one. But Wimbledon is an event that transcends the tennis calendar. It's a premier event on the sporting calendar, the pageantry of Wimbledon. You see the celebrities that show up year in, year out. To rebuke the Russian government on that stage would, one imagines, elicit some sort of response 
from the Putin regime. And the reason I bring this up is when Andrei Rublev writes peace, not war on the camera in the Middle East, that gets a response. You know, the very next match, he's not doing it. He's asked about it in the press conference report. He says, I don't want to talk about this anymore. You know what? I'm staying away from this topic moving forward. I think all of us understand the stress a public condemnation would put not only on these athletes, but these athletes' families. And of course, that's what we're most concerned about, because while some of these athletes may not live in Russia full-time, certainly they have family members that do. Certainly, again, that we can't guarantee the safety of anyone is just to put these athletes in an impossible position. And again, I also think it's important to not alienate, ostracize anyone in support of Wimbledon's decision. If you believe that the Russian unprovoked aggression towards Ukraine is so egregious that you don't want to offer any sort of legitimacy to Russia in any sort of sense, particularly on a stage as grand as Wimbledon, I can understand that line of thinking. I do not agree with it. I would not place the burden of this Russian regime on these individual athletes, particularly then when we can start cherry picking some other egregious offenses by just about every government that exists on the planet. I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I'm just saying you can find those sorts of examples. Certainly, it's really tough. To your point, David, as you started out with your answer, it's not a black and white situation, and there are no winners in this situation either. And again, Wimbledon's going to do what Wimbledon's going to do. They've always done that, dating back to canceling the event and cashing in on that insurance policy. I do wonder if a what. So let's. This will be our last question, then we can move on to talk about the tennis. What would it take, in your opinion, for Wimbledon to change their decision? And is there anything else you'd like to add, by the way? Because I know I've been adding some things and not letting you respond. Yeah, no. First of all, I mean, it's true what you said about Ukraine. I mean, I defy you to tell Marta Kostyuk or Lesia Tsarenko that they don't have the right to feel however they want to feel about this. They're certainly the aggrieved party in this. And if they feel that um, that Russian athletes shouldn't participate or they want what they want from them, I'm certainly not going to ask them or, or, or tell them that they shouldn't they don't have the right to feel that way. You know, I think functionally there is a question and certainly that was made clear from the statements from the ATP and WTA, which were certainly strong statements, certainly yes. stronger than anything that was presented by the PTPA. I mean, what a missed opportunity mm-hmm. from the Players Tennis Association to not come out with some kind of stance. I mean, they basically just decided to ride the fence and say we support the Russians, we support the Ukrainians. Going forward, that's what we're going to do. And, and kind of leaving, I guess, to Novak Djokovic uh, in Serbia to perhaps speak on behalf of the PTPA because it is sort of his his baby. But at the same time, he's not saying I speak on behalf of the PTPA as the president. This is just my personal opinion about uh, the situation. But I think going forward, based on what the ATP and WTA uh, have suggested in their statements, the question is, how, how do they respond going forward if they cannot re- uh, achieve any kind of impasse or any kind of progress, rather, with the with the uh, All England Club, with the LTA, will they not allow Wimbledon to offer points, you know, mm-hmm. ranking points? Will they encourage uh, players to not play that event? Will they create tournaments the week of Wimbledon for Russian athletes to participate? And again, you're creating a situation where we're martyring these Russian athletes and martyring these Russian yes. people. And I think that's sort of the so line well that we're straddling yes. because now, you know, if you can't let them play, if you can't let Daniil Medvedev play Wimbledon, for example, and I don't think he would do this, but, you know, you're, you're freeing up time for them to be political pawns in Russia. I mean, we saw that rally uh, happening uh, a few weeks ago in Moscow where where Putin was trotting out Olympic athletes, you know, creating, you know, yes. these these uh, stars that these are large public figures with large public followings and to make victims out of them where they're certainly not the victims here. That that creates another sort of um, 
a complication. But I think what it comes down to is, you know, there is the only argument, there is an argument to make for banning Russian athletes. And I think the, the clearest one is that if they are receiving direct support from their federation, it probably feels inappropriate to allow them to, to compete at this time. And I think with tennis, that's really not the case. You know, these are independent contractors. They're living around the world. They're training around the world. They are citizens of the world in many respects. And I think what draws a lot of tennis fans to tennis, you know, Davis Cup and BJK Cup notwithstanding, is sort of the, the globalization of yes. the sport. You know, you could be from New York and support a Russian. You could be from Australia and support an Italian. It's not this sort of... Um, patriot, uh, jingoistic driven fandom. I mean, it is for some people, but certainly I think the, for a large majority of tennis fans, we root for who we root for and we like who we like, irrespective of the flag or lack thereof on uh, the scoreboard. So I think all in all, it's just really messy. I certainly want to see the best competition at Wimbledon and certainly going to see that's going to be a line reflected in the Russian media. Well, you know, if you're not going to see the best competition at the event, what good is the event? And if the Russian and Belarusian athletes continue to play really well leading up to Roland Garros and Wimbledon, it's certainly going to make them uh, look even more prescient when they when they invariably make that uh, that comment. So all in all, very messy. And I hope it, it resolves globally and also tennisistically. Yeah, very well said. The other thing to add is you know, it, it, the Summer Olympics last year were in Tokyo, and we are both United States-based. As such, perhaps we didn't get to watch as much of the action as we would have liked. You know who got to see Hatchinov make a run and Rublev and, and uh, Pavlichenkova make their run in doubles and Karatsev and all the things they did were the Russians who got to see their Russian athletes have success in tennis, even if they were competing as ROC, you know, at the time in 2021. And Daniil Medvedev has just won a Grand Slam title. And again, it has become that much more prominent. You know, uh, Pavlachenkova is coming off of a French Open final as well. Perhaps there's no Sharapova right now amongst the Russian athletes, but there's some pretty damn good Russian tennis players, and certainly that is a uh, you know a sport. And you see the St. Petersburg events, the Moscow events. There is support for tennis, obviously, within Russia. And again, it, it, to your point, the sooner I don't want to say the sooner Putin comes to his senses, because that's the sooner Putin can be pressured into no longer continuing this action, the sooner we can return to some sense of normalcy. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane. Again, I do apologize for the audio screw-up on my end. We will be sure to get David back on this podcast here shortly to talk about his thoughts on everything that's unfolded on court in the tennis world. But again, I know you all are looking for a recap of Belgrade, of Stuttgart, of Istanbul, of uh, Barcelona. We will have that for you in the second of our two-mini-break Monday day here at Cracked Rackets later on this evening. So be on the lookout for that podcast as well as all of our other content as we try to cover all of the action happening in busy times right now across levels in the tennis world. Of course, if you are looking for all of that content, all of your updates can be found on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, The Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, and our YouTube channel to ensure that you don't miss out on any of our content. Of course, of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible, ensuring my 
lack of technical savvy doesn't you know completely bring down our crack rackets operations so shout out to him as always for the job that he does a shout out as well to our friends at tennis point for the support they give us week in week out again to learn more about what they're offering go to tennis-point.com today use that promo code cr15 for the latest equipment at the greatest prices and by the way if you want to learn more about tennis point go check out our tour of tennis point usa hq you can find that video on our crack rackets youtube channel you can watch a Tennis Point Tuesday unfold. I suppose a live podcast recording if you want to know what it looks like when we do record. You can find all of that on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Again, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at Crack Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Again, two mini break Monday coming up for all of you listeners day- today. But for now, we sign off. And as always, you know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all later. Thanks, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.